0: Do you know what it is to feel displaced? Displaced. Have you ever thought about that word itself? Displace? It suggests that you have a place, a rightful place, a claim to a place, and you have been displaced, removed from that place, pushed aside I suspect all of us have at least some sense of what it is to be displaced and it hurts only the more depending on how secure our place seemed to be how valuable our place seemed to be. We perhaps have been displaced from a job, displaced from a romantic relationship, displaced from a ministry or a task. We had something that was ours and it was comfortable, and then suddenly we were moved out of the place and we are tempted to say, what is going on? Now someone who knew what it was to be displaced from a human perspective was the man that we talked about during our service this morning, John the Baptist. If you were teaching during Sunday school today and so missed our beginning, I asked each person this morning in our audience to identify the three people that came immediately to mind for them as being the most important, the greatest, the most significant in God's redemptive program up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't know how many of them ultimately chose John the Baptist, but Jesus would have. Because Jesus said in Luke 7, of those that are born of women to this point, every single one that has been born of a woman, there is not one greater, there is not one prophet above John the Baptist. He is at the pinnacle. And we saw this morning what a truly great man he was. He was great because he was given a divine calling to pave the way, to make a straight path for Jesus, the Messiah. He was great because he truly did not cling to his own greatness. He was the one who said of Jesus, I am not worthy even to untie the latchet of his sandals. You say, what does that mean? As we realized this morning, the Babylonian Talmud, A source for the Jews at this time said that a pupil should do everything for his teacher that a slave would do for his master except untie shoes, except take someone's shoes off. That was too demeaning. That was a slave's job. And here John, the greatest prophet who had ever lived to that point, the greatest man, was so... Uh, uh, so knowing, aware of his own weakness, of his own failure, of his own inability to live up to, the, to who Jesus was, the Messiah, that he said, I'm not even worry, worthy to be his slave. I'm not even worthy to be his pupil. What an incredible greatness this man had. And as I was talking and reflecting with some of you today after the service, we were commenting on the really remarkable end that John the Baptist had. Here was a man, all Judah and Jerusalem were coming out to be baptized with him. His ministry was just flourishing. People could not get enough of this unique man's preaching. But how did that ministry end? That ministry ended in a couple things. His followers leaving him and going to Jesus, being thrown into jail because he had dared to criticize publicly a corrupt and lustful leader, and ultimately his head being chopped off because that king's wife, if we could even say that, his brother's wife, had had a fit of pique, was angry, upset, and ultimately on an arbitrary whim said, I want him dead. And that And John the Baptist's story ended there. Now, what an incredible meteor John was. What an incredible shooting star. Someone who comes onto the scene, who has all of Judah and Jerusalem interested, pursuing his ministry, seeing people baptized, left and right, confessing their sins, and then all of a sudden, his ministry is gone, and he is dead. What I want us to see tonight is what can we learn From John about what it is to be displaced or unnoticed or unrecognized when it comes to our own service. Because it is easy for all of us to feel a kind of envy, a kind of jealousy, a kind of craving for recognition, for results for a kind of fulfillment that we have from seeing our own personal ministry be recognized, be successful, for our own service to be noticed. And here John the Baptist, the greatest prophet that ever lived before Jesus, shows us a different way, a way that is dripping with grace and humility and a Christ-focus that I hope will be a challenge to all of us. The title of the message tonight is John, the Best Man. John, the Best Man. And I use that title intentionally because of an example of a picture, of an analogy that John gives in this passage, and I think that will be helpful for our own prophet this evening. I want us to look at three aspects here. First of all, a fleshly concern. Secondly, a sovereign choice. And finally, a joyful conviction. A fleshly concern, a sovereign choice, and a joyful conviction. What is going on here in John chapter three? Well, notice with me, going back to verse number 22 where we began, and we're told biographically That Jesus, after these things, after he had spoken to Nicodemus, given these wonderful truths in uh, that chapter about who Jesus was and what salvation required, Jesus came and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. So here Jesus is spending time with his disciples, and Jesus' disciples are baptizing. They are following what appears to be a similar ministry to what John had been doing preaching repentance and baptizing as John the Baptist had been. Now John also, John, in verse 23, also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. So notice here a comparison. Jesus and his disciples, John and his disciples. What are are Jesus and his disciples doing? They're baptizing and teaching. What is John and his disciples doing? They are baptizing and they are teaching. Two groups, a common method, and a similar goal. Now notice in verse 25. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him. Now who are these they? And they came unto him. It's unclear whether it's John's disciples or the Jews, perhaps we could safely assume it may have been some of both. Now, if you notice the spirit in which this is being asked, it seems to me it's probably more likely John's disciples that are asking this question, but we don't know. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom thou bearest witness, what did Jesus say beyond Jordan about Jesus? John said, this is the one. I'm not, I'm not the Christ. This is the one you should be following. So he bear witness to him. Behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Now there's an, a direct comparison being given here. John, you used to be really popular. All, jo- all Ju- Judah and Jerusalem used to come out to you. And now Jesus and his disciples have come and set up shop And no one's coming to you anymore. All men are going to him. Now what is implicit in this question? How do you feel about that, John? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the fact that Jesus is getting your crowds? How do you feel about the fact that your influence has waned? Your impact has waned? John like a reporter sticking a microphone into his face. Care to comment? Care to comment? And what I want to start with here is a fleshly concern. Because I want to see if we were in John's shoes, how would we feel? I just want to be very honest with yourself. How would you feel? I can tell you what would be very natural for me to feel and what would be very natural for you to feel. What would be natural is for you to focus on the same things that the questioner was focusing on. What were the things the questioner was focusing on? The one who asked John this question. They are focusing on a couple things. One, on what success looked like. Implicit in their question was, Jesus is succeeding. Success looks like crowds. Success looks like People. Success looks like inherent and obvious impact and effect. That was what they were focusing on. But notice also, not just a focus on success, a focus on a comparison to someone else who is having success. It was not just about saying, John, you are not having success. It was about saying, John, you are not having success, and someone else is. Jesus is having success. You were the one that was talking to him and talking about him before and now your followers are going over to him and he is receiving the crowds. Whenever we focus on success in external view of impact or effect or success what will come naturally alongside it is comparison. And you do not need to go far into our church growth movement To see exactly that. Who are the ones who are the sought-out pastors to write books, to speak at conferences, and to be figures in this movement? Those that have built a big church. Those that now are paid, or perhaps just volunteer, to pass on their secrets for how they built a big church. Pass along their tips, their ideas for how exactly they are drawing more people. You would even, um, uh, I've heard of a, a conference that was all about pastors coming together and sharing ideas. Ideas that had worked for them. Ideas maybe that had not worked for them. It's literally called an ideas conference where pastors get together. Again, the idea here is if we focus on what it appears to be success, what will very naturally flow from it is a comparison spirit. And if we focus on success and then we focus on comparison, I can tell you something else It will be very natural to follow. It will be envy. Because that is natural to every one of us. If person A is having more success than person B, then how should I feel about that? Friends, this is something that can affect the most spiritual of Christians. F.B. Meyer, you have probably heard of him. You have probably read things, devotional things that F.B. Meyer wrote. He was a preacher in the early 1900s that in England had wonderful writings on the work of the Holy Spirit and on, uh, on a variety of other subjects. He was a pastor in England around the time when G. Campbell Morgan was preaching, and as well when Thomas Spurgeon, the son of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was preaching as well. And I actually read um, the person who wrote this firsthand. They said that F.B. Meyer, who, who by his nature was just a very gentle, spiritual man, admitted to this person that it was very easy for him to pray for the success of G. Campbell Morgan when he was over preaching in America. He said, but he realized, now this is a very godly man and humble man who will admit this. He said it was much harder, he felt it harder for him to pray for G. Campbell Morgan when he came back and took a church not far from F.B. Meyer. And to his credit, he said he, 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 he felt that old Adam's spirit of jealousy. He said that old Adam coming up in him of resentment and of envy toward the crowds that G. Campbell Morgan was drawing in his own area until he said, I put my heel on him. and he said, And his resolution was, if I can't feel right, at least I'm going to act right. At least I'm going to act right. And he said, F.B. Meyer actually brought G. Campbell Morgan to his church and held a, a reception for him and, and told everyone publicly, if I didn't have to preach on Sunday evenings, I would want to go and listen under him. And he said, that made me feel, feel the right way toward him. The most spiritual man among us can feel that kind of comparison spirit that kind of envy that comes up but what i want us to notice here is that this is not john the baptist asking the question who is the one who's clearly dealing with the spirit of comparison his disciples in other words don't think that the only ones who have a tendency to wonder and look around and compare about the success of ministries are those who are leading those ministries. We, as people who are a part of a church or a part of a ministry, we can be most prone, perhaps even more prone sometimes, than those in leadership to say, what success are others having around me? What kind of numbers are they having? What kind of apparent impact do they seem to have? And so I say this not to excuse me or anyone else in church leadership from recognizing our own tendency toward this very natural reaction, but simply to say, beware to each one of you. Because just like John's disciples were seen coming to him to say, hey, what do you think about the the baptizer down the road having more success than we are? So too we Whoever in whatever place we've been called to, we can have the same kind of focus on success that leads to a comparison that ultimately leads to a spirit of envy and grudging. This is a fleshly concern that is true for every single one of us. And what I want to notice, secondly, about how John responds is how he rejects this fleshly concern and how he embraces a sovereign choice. And the point I want to make about you is, and for you and for me is that if we are to resist this kind of fleshly jealousy, this kind of fleshly envy and comparison spirit, this feeling of whether we're being noticed and recognized for our own faithful service is going to be based in our understanding of God's sovereign choice. Well, you notice what, how John responds. Verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness. You testify, you know this about me, that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. Now there's two things going on here that we need to notice. The first thing is what John understood about his job. What did he understand about his job? I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the important one here. I'm not the anointed one of God to be the king. Who am I? I am simply the one that is sent before him. Now, by the way, can you imagine being John the Baptist and realizing and acknowledging that your ministry had been prophesied specifically hundreds of years before? Can you imagine opening up the book of Malachi and looking at Malachi chapter 3, I will send my messenger before my face and saying, that's me? Looking 700 years prior, when you open up Isaiah chapter 40 and seeing that, that, y- that you were the one specifically tasked of God to go before the Messiah, I mean, how could you not get a sense of pride? Of Wow! This is a big deal. But John knew what God's sovereign choice for him was. My job, my task is not the Messiah. My job is the preparer, the herald, the messenger, the go-before to simply get ready for him. But notice what comes next, what also this involves. Not just his, jo- not just his awareness of God's sovereign as to his task, but also to, of his results. A man can receive nothing except he, it be given from him from heaven. Now let me ask you this question. When, when John's disciples come to him and say, Hey John, Jesus is having all those people. By comparison, you're not. And John responds, Well, some, no one can receive anything except it were given him from above. Is he talking about Jesus or about himself? Do you think he's talking about Jesus Not receiving anything unless he got it from above? Or is he talking about himself receiving nothing unless it came from above? Both. Both. He's saying, all the people that I had in the first place, God, are because you gave them to me. And he's saying, the ones that are going over to Jesus now and being baptized of him, they are the role and the results that God you have given as well. No man can receive anything except it were given him from above. Friends, when you park yourself in God's calling for your life and his results that he sees fit to bring into your lives, do you know how liberating it is? Do you know how liberating it is When God calls some loved one into our fellowship who is such a blessing to our body to say, no man can receive anything except it were given him from above. That's not me and that's not us. That's him. And do you know how liberating it is when God calls someone out of our fellowship? Calls someone away from our ministry, away from our body to say, no man can receive anything except it were given him from above. God bless you. God bless you. That is liberating. Because we ultimately do not need to cling to our results. Look to our comparisons of how person A is doing compared to person B, or church C is doing compared to church D, when we can say with John, none of it is ours anyway. It's all from him. And may all of us cling to that. May all of us stand in that liberating power when we are able to commit this church and what we are doing at this church and in any other ministry that you have, ultimately to the sovereign will and desires of God for you. John simply rejected a fleshly concern when he said, this is about the task that I've been given and the people that God has seen fit to give me to meet it. Now, I want you to see something about this sovereign choice because John not only is just parked in this, but he has a picture for us to try to dig into here. Notice with me verse 29 He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Say, what is John saying there? Well, let's pick up the picture, shall we? There are 3 people in verse 29. There is a bride, there is a bridegroom who is marrying the bride, and there's a best man. And here's what John is saying. There's a very simple picture that all of these Jews would have understood. Jesus is the groom. I my job is to bring the bride to him. The people of Israel at that time who would be his and ultimately culminating in the bride of Christ being his church called out of every people and language Jew and Gentile and John is the is the best man now you say why is was this such an important picture well I've never been a best man I blame James for that I feel like I would have a good chance at it if you would just, you know, snap to it. I've never been a best man, so I can't tell you what it is to be a best man in today's age, but I can tell you a little bit about what I've read that it was to be a best man in Jesus' day. In a Jewish sense, a best man was not just the guy who had the job of putting together the bachelor party, and of making sure he had the rings in the pocket, the ring bearer walks up and gives them. No, 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 no. The best man had a little different responsibility. As I understand it, the best man was the one, the bridegroom was at his house getting ready because he had a gal moving in. And so he was the one that was really focused on getting ready his house. And he chose his best man, and it was his best man's job to get ready for the wedding. It was the best man's job ultimately to prepare and then bring the bride to the groom. And so the best man shows up. The best man has a central role. He is almost, if if you will, the person bringing them together hand in hand, having taken on this significant oversight and preparation role for his best friend. Now I want you to think about that In this perspective, I want you to think about John looking at this picture and saying, My job is to come before the groom and prepare the wedding. And my job is to go and take the bride and bring her to the groom, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, doing his ministry. And once the two of them find each other, I step out of the way and my job is done. Now notice again what he said. The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears the bridegroom. And he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. I want us to see not just a fleshly concern... Not just a sovereign choice, but thirdly, a joyful conviction. I say it is first of all the conviction, because notice what John says in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. When John saw himself as the best man who had a sovereignly chosen task from God to bring the bride and the bridegroom together and step out of the picture, he had a conviction that could only say he must increase and I must decrease. Now, you know, there was a time in my life where I felt a similar conviction. It was a conviction that led to, I would say, the single greatest humiliation I have ever experienced in my entire life. And I hope never to repeat something this mortifying. I may have told the story before here. As an Oregon student at Duke University, our um, school put on a significant Oregon program, drawing on Um, uh, famous organists or just very accomplished organists from around the country or even the world to come in and play on the very kind of world-recognized organ that was at the Duke Chapel and because I was an organ student I would be asked to pull stops now this is not an organ like that organ where you just push a button and the stops come out this was what's called a manual organ so you needed one person on the left side of the organ pulling out stops in real time to change the sounds and one person on the right and I'll never forget, I was pulling stops and, and, uh, for a woman named Mary Preston. I'm very grateful she was a believer, by the way, for this entirely mortifying time. She was a very strong believer who gave a testimony, a Christian testimony, at this secular organ concert. And um, the sweetest lady, but we, she was playing a new piece, a piece called The Despair and Agony of Dachau. It was about the concentration camp that the Nazis have put together. It just a very, very evocative and powerful piece. And so uh, she was playing, and I was supposed to be literally in the middle of the concert at times. Like, we were reading the score, and there would be a rest, and I had a quarter rest to, like, get one stop out and, an- uh, and another stop out, like, in real time. And it was a lot of pressure. We got together and practiced beforehand. And I'll never forget, we were there... And she is um, playing, and I'm pulling out stops on something that she wasn't playing at that time, a manual that she wasn't playing on. And so I pick get the stops out, and she switches in the middle of the concert, in the middle of the piece, to the place that I had been manipulating. And she played a note, and she stopped in the middle of the concert because she knew it didn't sound right. So she knew something was wrong. I had messed up. And she holds that note and she looks over at where I have been pulling out stops and starts going like this. Like, what did he do wrong? What did he do wrong? I promise you I have never in my entire life wanted a massive hole to suck me up into and never be seen again. I am standing there just saying, oh no, oh no, like please make this stop. And sure enough, she finds it. She was literally just holding the note in the middle of the concert. Pulls it out and then keeps on going. I was actually very, very fortunate because no one had heard the piece before. It was a new piece. And I went down to my organ professor and I said, man, did I mess that up. It was so bad. He said, I didn't hear anything. No one knew. what she, They thought she was supposed to be holding that note. And I was saying, thank you, Lord. I was spared from even greater embarrassment. No. Why do I tell that extended story of my personal humiliation? For the simple reason. Because at that moment in time, and while I was pulling stops for Mary Preston, I wanted to decrease, and I wanted her to increase. I did not want to be the center of attention. I wanted to be the furthest thing from the center of attention that I possibly could have imagined. And the moment I became the center of attention, I said, no, 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 this is not how it's supposed to be. This is your concert, not mine. Now the same thing is true of the best man. The same thing is true of any performance in which we recognize someone else should be in the spotlight. Which tells me this, when you and I deal with the spirit of envy or jealousy or resentment about our service not being recognized, our results not coming through the way we wish, other people having a bigger spotlight than we do, the central problem is that we do not recognize who Jesus is. The central problem is that in that moment we think we are giving the concert in the organ seat and we don't recognize that we're just standing by assisting, hoping to disappear from sight. We think we are the bridegroom for whom the spotlight should be in that particular moment and we don't realize we're nothing but the best man at best. That's why... If we want to confront that spirit of envy and jealousy about being displaced that is so natural to all of us, it starts with our view of Jesus Christ. It's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Because his focus steadfastly was on the person of Jesus Christ what I want you to see here is not just that this was John the Baptist's conviction, like he must increase, and I must go into the background, I must decrease. I want you to see that it was his joy. Notice what he said. That friend of the bride rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. What he recognized is that it was not about him and so that when Jesus was the one, the spotlight was on, even if it meant that he was being completely displaced, he said, I can rejoice in that. The idea of the joy here in this Greek is just this overwhelming joy, this joy that just keeps on coming. And John the Baptist looked at the twilight of his ministry about his people and scope of influence rapidly diminishing and said, my joy is fulfilled. I got to hear the bridegroom's voice and see him connected to his bride. Now what does this mean for us? It means something again to a place that is so natural for all of us. It's to recognize that when our light dims a little bit, we tend to notice. When our light doesn't seem to be shining so brightly in that dark sky, we naturally say, what's going on? And why is that person's light a little bit brighter than mine? But friends, I just want to point out one thing your Christmas lights that are up this year don't do anything when the sun comes up. On a bright sunny day, no one notices. No one notices your Christmas lights on. Your Christmas lights are on only and noticeable when it's dark. And what that tells me is this. When you and I are desperate that the sun, Jesus Christ, is shining brightly, you and I won't care very much about whether our Christmas light hanging over the garage is a little bit brighter than our neighbors or not because hopefully no one is seeing it anyway. They are seeing the Son, Jesus Christ, and the light that He came to give. You see, the challenge for all of us, friends, I heard one pastor say, and I think it's so true, the places where Christians themselves are held up for glory are the places where Jesus and His light are darkened. And conversely, the places and the churches and the ministry where those in leadership are not held up for glory, not held up as see how bright their light is compared to someone else's, those are the churches that more often are the ones in which Jesus is shining brightly and everyone else's light is dimmed in comparison. This is true for us not only as a church when we un- try to think about what we want to be and who we want to be, but is true for us in whatever ministry and whatever a task God has called you to. If He's called you to something in that seems to be thriving right now and the results that you've always dreamed for are coming out, may you and I say, you know what? If Jesus is the one who's being seen right now, then he must increase and I must decrease. I'm happy to step out of the limelight. But friends, it's equally true that if in your sphere of calling, if in the task that you have been given, if in what God has tasked you with doing in this life, you're wondering, where are my results? Where's my impact? Why aren't I being noticed like I was before? Why aren't I being recognized? Remember this. Not only can it be your conviction that he must increase while you decrease, it can be your greatest joy to point people to Jesus Christ as the true light even when it means that your light will dim as it will seem in comparison to others. John knew what it was to be the best man. And he knew what it was to have the kind of humility that, in this time that would have been such a fleshly concern for so many of us, so naturally, for him simply to say, He must increase and I must decrease. And not just that, but his greatest joy in life was being fulfilled. So, friends, what will protect you from that spirit of envy, from that spirit of jealousy? What will protect you from looking at your success and your impact? It will be the focus on Jesus Christ and what he has called you to do. What I want to say tonight is how grateful I have been for the example of our friend Levi on this point. I don't intend to signal, uh, signal him out to embarrass him, but simply to say this, I think all of us would acknowledge that Levi has been an example in our midst of someone who is not only willing, but very happy when he is decreasing and Jesus is increasing. Levi has been an example to us of someone who has been willing to serve no matter how anonymously, no matter how far behind the scenes, no matter whether recognized or not. I myself personally could testify to the times in ways that you have never seen where Levi has just very quietly and humbly been willing to step forward and serve in a way that has been to the blessing of this body and to me personally. And I want just to say, not only with Levi, but with so many others of us, may we continue to seek to be that example of those who are very willing for our light to dim completely as long as the light of Christ is shining brightly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you Thank you for the example you give us of John the Baptist, this wonderful spiritual man who was willing to decrease, who was indeed joyful to decrease if Jesus was increasing. Father, thank you for all the examples of this kind of humble service that you have given us in this church. Thank you for Levi and thank you for the blessing that he has meant to us and to our ministry here. And we do pray your blessing on him. May he continue to preach not himself, but Christ Jesus the Lord. May he continue to decrease as you continue to increase through his ministry. And may this not just be the source of duty for him, but may it be the fulfillment of his great joy. Let's pause for a moment with our heads bowed and our eyes closed before we go to communion tonight. I don't know where this spirit, this fleshly concern might tend to manifest itself in your life. But I would just encourage you this evening to look to Christ, to ask whether you really truly are are happy to be the best man, whether you're happy to be the friend that decreases as long as he increases. Let's pause for a few moments. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Father, may we find our joy, our great and surpassing joy, in the humble service that seeks to simply point to Christ day after day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.